Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are studying the book of 1 Timothy, and this morning we come to the final chapter, chapter 6. I'll be reading just the first two verses. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Please give it your full attention. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. As our culture has, over the course of my lifetime, become much more sensitive to the issue of racism, we've had to take a second look at some of the great figures of American history, and we've had to struggle to process the idea that even though they were great statesmen, leaders, and military heroes, Many of them were also slave owners. It is a stain on the reputation of great men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Patrick Henry, who ironically is known for the phrase, give me liberty or give me death. And yet they were all slave owners. I tell you what's even more troubling is that some of my American Theological heroes also were guilty of being slave owners. Men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, who actually lobbied the governing authorities in the colony of Georgia to make slavery legal in that colony when it wasn't. I also look back to some of the great southern pastors and southern theologians who I would agree with in almost all theological points, and yet they defended the practice of slavery even well into the 20th century. We ask ourselves, in light of these things, how could these people, who were so wise, so admirable, even heroic, and even theologically correct, how could they have such a large blind spot in their minds and in their lives towards the evil of slavery. Well, these people look to the scriptures. And I think we have to be honest to say that the scriptures can be confusing on the issue of slavery. They can be hard to interpret and understand, and they are easily misunderstood on the topic of slavery, and they have been repeatedly. In verse 1 that I read just a moment ago, Paul addresses bond servants. That's a translation of the Greek word doulos, which is a very broad term in Greek, which can be applied to many different kinds of servants. And so you have to look at the context to decide what kind of servant is being spoken of. And in this context, it's absolutely clear what kind of servant 
that Paul is talking about because he says those who are under a yoke. A yoke, you know, the kind of thing you put on a team of oxen to pull your plow or to pull your wagon. The yoke in scripture is a metaphor for oppression, for slavery, for suffering, enslavement. So essentially, Paul here is telling slaves to honor and obey their masters. And he goes on to say in verse 2, especially honor and obey your masters if they are fellow believers in Jesus Christ. And there you have that troubling concept of a Christian slave owner. How do we understand this text? Well, this text must be understood in the light of all of Scripture. The problem is in our culture, we want to debate everything by sound bites. Arguments that last no more than 20 or 30 seconds. And you can't address the issue of slavery that way when it comes to Scripture. I know some of you looked at the Scripture passage for today and saw that I was only preaching on two verses and thought you are going to get out of here in 10 or 15 minutes. I have to apologize to you. No, actually, I'm going to try to cover what the scriptures teach as a whole on the topic of slavery and how Paul's teaching here is related to it. It's interesting, as we try to apply this passage to us today, a lot of preachers will go to the fact that slavery was different in the Roman Empire and probably the closest parallel to slavery that Paul is addressing in the Roman Empire would be to employees and employers in today's culture. And there's some truth to that, and certainly that's a legitimate way of applying this passage, but I think it's actually looking past the big elephant in the room, which is Paul is addressing people who are owned by other people. And he's telling them to honor their masters. And that, I would like to address that as the scriptures address it this morning. How do we endure a social evil and how do we ultimately defeat it? I think this passage is very applicable to that question, which is extremely relevant in many different ways today. You know, we tend to talk about slavery in historical terms because in our culture, we've gotten rid of it by and large, or have we? Scholars estimate that during the 400 years of the transatlantic chattel slaves trade that took place that our country participated in, during the 400 years that that was installed as an institution, 13.5 million Africans were kidnapped, put in chains, warehoused in inhumane conditions, abused, and then sold to Americans and Europeans as property. 13.5 million. Do you know how many slaves they estimate are in the world today? 25 to 30 million slaves today. And 10 million of those are children. We tend to think that we've become more sophisticated, more intelligent, more righteous. The problem is still with us today as much as ever or more than ever because sinners are still sinners in need of grace. There's a lesson, I think, in this passage for how to endure and overcome social evils, social sins like this. First thing we have to do is make sure we understand the issue. Slavery has taken on many different kinds of 
many different forms over the course of history. Generally speaking, we understand a slave to be, first of all, someone who is legally or illegally treated as the property of another human being. Secondly, we see a slave as someone, therefore, who is under the absolute authority of another human being. Someone with no rights in the eyes of the law. Thirdly, a slave is someone whose service is coerced and not willing. But as we'll see, that's not always been true in history. Then, what we're saying is that slaves are not only property, they're livestock to those who own them. They have the same legal status and rights as the livestock of an owner. In order to understand this issue, you gotta go back to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has a number of passages that address slavery, and they're difficult to interpret. The Old Testament law recognized the inevitability of slavery. And because of that, since slavery would predominate in a fallen world, the law was given to restrict it, to protect slaves to restrain evil. And so what the law said, first of all, interestingly, the law very clearly, the Old Testament law given through Moses, very clearly said that slave trading is an abomination in the eyes of a holy God. And it was to be punishable by death, the most severe penalty. Matter of fact, it's interesting, you go back to chapter 1, the very first section we looked at in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul lists enslavers there in a long list of evildoers. In that list, it has the word enslavers. In the literal Greek, it's man-stealers, the slave traders. It's listed among those who Paul calls the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. So make no mistake about it, that's God's view of the slave trade institution. Secondly, Israelites could only be a slave to another Israelite in order to pay off a debt. There are many laws that were put in place in the nation of Israel to keep people from becoming poor. But as a last resort, it was possible in Israel to sell yourself as a slave to the person to whom you owe a debt so that you can work for them to pay off the debt. We don't even tend to think of that as slavery. In our culture, we call that indentured servitude. And honestly, isn't that how many of our forefathers came to this country? That's how many of the immigrants to America from Europe got here was by means of indentured servitude. Soon as the debt was paid off, the slave was freed. And it says clearly in the Old Testament law that the masters were to treat their slaves as employees. It says literally in the law as hired workers. Treat them as employees with kind supervision, with fairness and justice, generosity and kindness. It's interesting that Paul basically gives the same instruction to slaves in his generation. Let me take you back to Ephesians 6. We'll be looking at Ephesians 6 a couple of times, but let me take you back to chapter 6 and read just verse 9, 
where Paul addresses masters. He says, masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality in him. And then over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Masters were to be kind and to provide well and to protect their slaves. Therefore, any slave, in, according to the Old Testament law, any slave that was abused was to be immediately set free. A strong protection for the slaves given in the Old Testament law. Also, all slaves were released after six years of service. All Israelite slaves were released after six years of service. The sabbatical year, they were released. And then, of course, in the 50th year, the Jubilee year. I hope the picture that you're getting is that the law regulated slavery for the sake of the slave, but it did not endorse it. It's very similar to what Jesus said about divorce. Remember what he said? He said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The Old Testament law recognized that sinners are sinners, that, that in our fallen nature we have the, 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 uh, the absolute desire to abuse each other instead of serving one another in love. And so the law recognizes as long as sin is in the world, as long as the world has fallen, then slavery is going to be an issue. We also need to understand the context of Paul and Timothy because, as I mentioned earlier, slavery in the first century was different than slavery in the American South. First of all, it's interesting to note that at this point in the Roman Empire, one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. One-third of the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. People became slaves in a variety of ways, as prisoners of war, as punishment for a crime. They were sometimes sold into slavery by their parents, and sometimes they sold themselves into slavery, usually to pay off a debt. What's interesting is in the first century, slavery was not race-based the vast majority of the time. It was based on a person's socioeconomic status, not their race. And it is an important difference. Many in that day were coerced into unwilling service as slaves, but many also saw it as a means to an end. If you were on the lower rungs of society, you had very few avenues to get yourself to a better place in society, and so if you were at the bottom, a lot of times these people would sell themselves into slavery because it would give them opportunities to make their life better because of the way the culture was. And so many of these, these poor people would become slaves in order to serve as butlers or cooks in a large household, which was certainly better than the, the, the difficult existence they had before. But it, it actually went much farther than that. Many of them were teachers. Many of them were even government officials and doctors. The culture was just very different back then, and slavery was different. And so, generally speaking, many of the slaves 
we're treated like employees, and that's why I say it is appropriate to apply this to an employer-employee situation in many cases. Matter of fact, some slaves, especially household slaves, were treated like members of the family, and they didn't want to be set free. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that we can emphasize that point so much that we lose sight of the fact that slaves were still property. They had no more rights or protections by law than an animal. That was their state. And many, many slaves in the first century, when Paul's writing this letter, were as abused and degraded and humiliated as any American slave was ever abused. And Paul knew this as he wrote these words, and yet he still says, submit, honor, obey your master. He's telling them how to live faithfully under the yoke. How do you live faithfully when you have no control of your situation and someone else is in control of you? The first thing that Paul tells these slaves basically is remember your mission. Remember why you're here. Slaves, you're Christians. You've been born again. You've been given new life in Christ. You've been given a new status. You are sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. But why are you still here in this fallen world? What's your purpose? What's your mission? That's what he's reminding them of. And he says to them, to re regard your own masters as worthy of all honor. Notice he doesn't say they are worthy of all honor because many of them weren't. He says, but regard them as though worthy of all honor. To honor in Scripture, we've seen it in 1 Timothy as well as many other places in the New Testament. To honor means to respect, to submit to, and to obey. Unless you think this is an aberration, Paul says this many places in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants or slaves. And I'm just going to from now on replace bond servants. The ESV uses in these passages for slaves because that's the more accurate translation, more narrow translation. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. You can see that this was the consistent message that the Apostle Paul had for those who served as slaves. Submit, honor, respect, obey your masters. Unless you think that that was Paul, Paul's only thinking of those good and kind and generous masters, Peter makes it clear that slaves were to have the same attitude and same response to even the cruel and wicked masters. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, listen to what he says to the slaves. He says, servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is, gracious, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. That's hard teaching. 
Paul speaking to slaves and he's saying, you have been called by Jesus Christ to be his disciple. And that means you are to walk in his steps. And he walked in the steps of being a slave and a servant. Now, of course, you always have to add that every time Paul talks about submitting to authority, and he says it very, very often. Uh, I've been more and more impressed by that in the New Testament. We are told, all of us, no matter what our life situation, to submit to the authorities in our lives, whether they be church or government or family. To submit to authority is the essence of Christianity. But what's interesting is that every time Paul talks about submitting to masters, he says, do it in the Lord. And what does he mean by that? He means... Your master is not your ultimate master. And if your master were to require you to do something that would disobey your Lord in heaven, then you must disobey your, your earthly master. That's what obedience in the Lord means, is that ultimately my obedience is always and my loyalty is always to my Lord Jesus Christ. And no earthly authority can ask me to disobey Christ. But in all other matters... We should submit to our earthly authorities, even slaves to the master. At this point, as an American, you're listening to this and you're saying, but why is there no call to revolt here? Why is there no call to social uprising? Why no uh, exhortation to vote, to blog, to protest, to storm the Capitol? What, you know, why? Well, it's because... Paul is writing within the context of the Roman Empire. The emperor was a dictator. He had absolute authority. He had a powerful military to enforce his will. A slave had no recourse in the first century. He didn't have the right to vote. He didn't have a right to write a letter to his congressman. He didn't have an internet to blog upon. He had no recourse. He was trapped. He was stuck. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to look at that passage in a minute, but in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says to a slave, if you get the opportunity to be free, take it. But he's assuming that in the vast majority of the cases, that opportunity is not going to come. So how does a slave live under the yoke? What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ under that kind of a yoke? Well, Paul says, notice the reason. And here's the key verse, the key part of the verse in verse 1 to the whole subject. He reminds slaves of the mission of every single disciple of Jesus Christ, which is to honor and submit to and obey your masters so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That's your mission. That's why you're here. That's why God hasn't immediately transported you into the eternal kingdom because you are here to glorify the name of God as a sinner saved by grace in a fallen world and to spread the teaching of the word. That's your mission. It's your prime directive. Your highest goal in life is not to fight for your earthly rights and freedoms. Your highest goal is not to maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain. Those things are good. And if you get the opportunity to do them, great, go for it. But your mission is to glorify the name of God and to spread his teaching. 
Slavery cannot stop that mission. Matter of fact, I think what Paul's alluding to here is that sometimes suffering like slavery can actually advance that mission. Paul said about his own imprisonment when he he sat in a prison cell in Rome. In that Roman prison, he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The glory of God, the glory of the name of God, and the teaching of God, the word of God, is not bound no matter how much we as his servants may be bound. Going back to that passage in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that... In everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They are fulfilling their mission by being obedient, good servants as slaves of their masters. They are adorning the gospel of God by the way that they are responding to living under the yoke. How do they live with that kind of faithfulness? How do they endure not just endure but do it in joy how well first of all by understanding that God often uses suffering in order to advance his cause God often uses the weaknesses and the sufferings of his people to get the message of the gospel to those who need to hear it rarely does God use our earthly physical material strengths to advance the gospel Regularly, faithfully, consistently he uses our strengths and our sufferings to advance the message of the gospel. And so Paul is telling them, just like Peter did, follow in the steps of your Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come in earthly strength. He came in earthly weakness, which turned out to be the power of God for salvation. Follow in his steps. Work for the kingdom as he did. Secondly, how you endure is you set your sights not on earthly rewards or earthly comforts or earthly freedoms or earthly rights. You set your sights on heavenly, eternal, spiritual rewards. That's how you get through our relatively brief time of suffering in this world. That's a consistent biblical message. But notice, I want to take you back to these passages again. Read the rest of them that I didn't read before so that you can hear how Paul keeps pointing them to these eternal rewards. First of all, Ephesians 6. I read earlier what Paul said to the masters. Let me read to you what he said to the slaves, expanding upon what I read earlier. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Look to your eternal reward. You are serving Christ. Yes, you are obeying and honoring your earthly master, but ultimately you are serving Christ, and he will reward you. And he will especially reward you if you have to obey your master in the midst of humiliation and degradation and abuse. Blessed are you in heaven who are persecuted on earth. That's the promise of God. 
Colossians 3, again, giving you more context of what he says to the slaves there, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. But then notice what he says next, and this is important. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Not only do we look to the future reward and the special reward to those who endure suffering in this world, but we also look forward to future justice. And those abusive masters, those cruel slave owners, if they do not repent, will have to stand before King Jesus and give an account for the way that they treated their slaves, and they will pay for it for eternity if they do not repent and put their faith in Christ. That's how you endure injustice in this life, no matter what the injustice is, is knowing that Christ will reward your faithfulness in the face of injustice, and Christ will punish the evildoer who is unrepentant in his sin. You're not ignoring justice. You're not, excusing just, you're not ignoring injustice. You're not excusing injustice. You're just waiting for justice to come. And it will because Christ is faithful to his promise. Think about this. The witness of a slave enduring injustice as though serving the Lord joyfully and willingly is probably the most powerful testimony that slave could ever offer to a fallen world. The American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, there's lots of reasons why that civil rights movement was ultimately successful. But when I look back at that history, I'm always struck by how powerful the images were when you saw quiet, peaceful, praying, worshiping protesters being abused by the authorities. Those are the images that turned the course of that cultural war because they were being faithful to their Lord and being abused by the world and the world got fed up of seeing it. That's what happened in the Roman Empire. That's what I hear is that the Roman civilization, the Roman population just got tired of watching Christians being eaten by lions and beat up by gladiators and burned at stakes. The witness of those who were willing to go to death for the sake of their love for Christ and their commitment to that eternal kingdom was powerful. The early church understood that its martyrs were to be the most honored among the saints because not even death would cause them to deny their Lord. In God's eyes, think about this, in God's eyes, coercing another human being to serve you is an abomination in the eyes of a holy God. But, but, willingly serving others, even your enemies, because you love God and love your neighbor because of what Christ has done in you, is actually the epitome of godliness. Is that not what godliness is? Is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. To put others before yourself. To serve others. To put their needs before your own. 
When you do that willingly as servants unto the Lord, that is the ultimate in godliness. And it's the exact opposite of slavery. So our mission is to live out and speak out the gospel. To exalt the glory of the name of God. To glorify God and to lift up his teaching before the world because that's where the only hope is. What is the teaching of God's word? Summarized in three words, usually. Creation, fall, and redemption. God's word tells us that we were created by God in his own image. Perfect people in a perfect world made in the very image of God. And that is why it is an abomination in the eyes of God to treat a a human being like property or livestock. Because that's to desecrate the very image of God that he has placed in man. Abraham Lincoln, at the end of the Civil War, stood in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and began his famous speech with these words. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Where did he get that idea from? The Bible. Because that's the only place you're going to find it. I was listening to a study on Islam this week. And I was reminded in that study that in the religion, the massive world religion of Islam, they do not believe that man is created in the image of God. Because God cannot be represented by anything, not even man. That huge religion that dominates the world does not believe that man, woman, children are created in the image of God. One of the other major worldviews in the world today is materialism. They also do not believe that man is created in the image of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, there is no hope of getting rid of racism or slavery without believing that man is made in the image of God. That's where the gospel starts. But then the rest of the teaching of God's word goes on to say that we fell from that glorious estate of being perfect people made in the image of God in a perfect world. And God brought a curse upon the earth as man separated himself from God because of his sin. And so as a result, we are born with a nature where we are driven to abuse one another, to make use of one another, to manipulate one another for our own purposes, for our own service. We are all slave owners at heart when we're born into this world. Remember what Jesus said again, what I said about, he said about divorce? It's because of the hardness of man's heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is not what we were created for. This was not God's intent. And that's where we get to the rest of the story of God's word, is that God loved his own and sent his own son into the world. He sent him in as a slave. That's the right translation of Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took upon himself a human nature. And this is how Philippians 2 describes that. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. And I know that's usually translated servant, but I think, again, in that context, slave is the appropriate word. He took on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
The gospel is all about a slave submitting to authority, first of all, to earthly authorities, but ultimately to the authority in heaven, his father who sent him to the cross to pay for our sin and raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. God sent his son to break the yoke that was around all of our necks. That's the Old Testament language for redemption. God promised he would send his son to break the yoke on the necks of his people. And it wasn't slavery to mankind. It wasn't slavery to government. It was our worst slavery. According to scripture, our worst slavery was to sin and death. And he broke it through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. As a result, here is who we are in Christ. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And then he speaks of the implications of that over in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly what he's telling the slaves to do. You have been born again, you've been forgiven, you are sons and daughters of the king, you are heirs of the eternal kingdom. You've got these earthly, cruel masters who are abusing and mistreating you. You are free to serve. Serve them under the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfill your mission to exalt the name of God and to spread the teaching of God's word. Probably one of the, uh, you know, let me take you, I want to take you back to 1 Corinthians 7. I mentioned that earlier. Listen to what he slays. I think all, 1 Corinthians 7 is hard to read until you get all this rest of context of Scripture. Listen to what Paul says there. This is 1 Corinthians 7, beginning of verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant, a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a slave of Christ. That's how the slave was the slave's self-identity. I am a freedman because I'm a son of, a, of the kingdom. I belong to Christ. I am free from sin and death. I am free to serve even in suffering, difficult, humiliating circumstances because of what Christ has done. A great example of the power of the gospel to transform society is given in the book of Philemon. I'm convinced it's one of the reasons the book of Philemon is in the Bible. The story behind it is that there was a slave named Onesimus. He ran away from his owner, his slave owner, a Christian by the name of Philemon. He ran away from Philemon. He ended up meeting the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul led him to Christ. Onesimus is now a Christian. And Paul disciples him in the ways of Christ. And then what does Paul do? He sends him back to Philemon. Sends him back to his master. To serve his master now as unto the Lord. But what's fascinating is what he says to Philemon. And listen carefully to that. This is verses 15 to 17 in the book of Philemon. He says to the slave owner, 
For perhaps this is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. That's the power of the gospel, that both the slave and the slave owner would look at each other as fellow sinners saved by grace, brothers in Christ, equal, equally made in the image of God, equally serving God in the kingdom, just in different ways. That's the power of the gospel. Many, many Christians that I talk to these days are discouraged because we feel like we've lost the cultural war. We feel like we have no voice. We feel like the whole society around us is going to hell and there's nothing we can do to stop it and we're discouraged. This society is increasingly hostile and increasingly rejecting both the name of God and the teaching of God. We do not live in a dictatorship, though. We live in a constitutional republic. And because of that, we have been given more freedom to influence our society and influence our government than any human beings ever in the history of the world because of technology, if nothing else. And so we have more responsibility to glorify the name of God and, and to spread the teaching of God. So please vote. Please protest. Please write letters to your congressmen. Take advantage of all these freedoms while they still exist to influence our government, to influence authorities, to influence society. Do it. But that is not your main mission. That's your secondary mission. Your main mission is to glorify the name of God and to spread the teaching of God's word. That's your mission. Yes, we are to be salt and light to restrain the forces of evil, but more than that, we are to bring the message of life and truth in Jesus Christ. And often that, the success of our mission is going to come through our weakness, not our earthly strengths. The battle is the Lord's, and he's already won the battle. He's won the war. We don't measure our success in the kingdom of God by how many elections are won, by how many, how, where we stand in the political polls, by how many bills are passed by legislatures, or how many favorable decisions we get from Supreme Court justices. That's not how we measure success in the kingdom of God. And some of the most powerful successes for the kingdom of God are when God's people have no earthly strength at all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the war we're fighting. That's the war we've already won. And that is where we look to for success. Jesus taught that his kingdom would spread like leaven in a batch of dough. That means it's going to spread in a hidden way. It's going to spread gradually. It's going to spread progressively, but it's going to infiltrate the entire lump of dough. The whole world is going to be influenced by the gospel. And we're at a great part of that, and we're winning this war. And the ultimate victory is coming soon.
Our strategy, our mission, no matter what our status in this world, is to glorify the name of God and spread the teaching of his word, especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the many ways in which we have sought to use the the means, the strengths that this world respects in order to accomplish kingdom purposes. Father, forgive us for the many ways in which we've forgotten what our mission is. Forgive us for our despair, for forgetting the promises that Christ gave us, not just that he's coming again, but that he wouldn't come again until his gospel reached every corner of the earth. Lord, we praise you for the work of the Spirit and the work of the gospel as we see it changing lives all around us. Lord, help us to be faithful in whatever circumstances we are in, whether free or enslaved. And may Christ receive the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.